I also wanted to just mention if uh, today it, it was our a special collection for Global Missions uh, team, and uh, if you didn't come prepared to give today, if it just slipped your mind, uh, you know, we would encourage you to just uh, mail it to the office or drop it by this week sometime. Um, that would be great. We really need your support to make this happen, uh, to be part of, you know, spreading the good news of Jesus to a, a culture that so desperately needs it. So thank you. All right, Doug. Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Thank you. For those of you using the Red Bible, this will be found on page 676. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? Is it because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth? Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, said the Lord, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Thanks, Doug. All right, week number three in Malachi. And so a real cheery passage for us today. Um, <laughs> well, what would you say if I told you that in spite of what we just read in the text, that God doesn't hate divorce? What would, what would you think if I said that? Most pastors have pointed to this passage at some time in counseling with someone or whatnot. And, and we have said, and myself included, that, listen, God hates divorce. So you might be asking, well, why would Pastor Dave stand up here and say God doesn't hate divorce? Well, that is my teaser to get you to listen to the rest of the sermon. All right, there you go. Uh, by the end of this sermon, I hope to have answered that question for you. So hang in there with me. Um, you know, I know the truth of the matter is that we have a number of, of families in this church who have been touched and, uh, and saddened and have had pain through the issue of divorce and There are a number of you who know firsthand just the sting and pain that is created by divorce. And so, but this passage, ultimately today, I really want you to understand this, and I hope you do by the end, that this passage really isn't about marriage, and it really isn't about divorce. Marriage in this passage is God's illustration and Malachi's illustration of a deeper truth. God is using the marriage of Israelites and their concept of marriage to talk about something that's even more important. And the problem is, is oftentimes when we look at this passage and, and, you know, we proof text, we just pull little bits out of it that we want and forget the context. The problem is, is that oftentimes when we read this passage, we get the illustration confused with the application. We get the illustration of marriage confused with the application of marriage. 
And so we spend more time on the illustration than we do the application. This happens to me all the time. As a pastor, I'm constantly giving you illustrations. And you people constantly forget the point of the illustration, right? Like you remember, I, on multiple occasions I shared about this experience that I had when Nicholas was five or six years old and we took him to Disney's Animal Kingdom and there was this dinosaur ride there. And I thought, oh, this is a cute, nice little dinosaur ride and he'll love it. I'm thinking Barney and whatnot. And so we get him in line and somehow I missed all the signs that said warning, loud noise, you know, dark environment. I missed all those signs. And I took my six-year-old child on this ride and we get in the ride and they strap us in and we go through the doors and it's pitch black. And I went... Oh no, <laughs> I've got my six-year-old here. I, you know, I've shared this story on multiple occasions and, you know, so we're going and there are these megawatt subwoofers, blaring dinosaur roars and flashing lights. And, and then during this whole ride, like I've told you on multiple times when I've shared this story, I'm just holding Nicholas tight and I got my hand over his eyes and I'm just whispering in his ear, Nicholas, it's going to be okay. Daddy's right here. It's not real. Don't be afraid. It's just fine. And I'm just thinking he's going to be in tears and bawling and I can't get out. You know, it's not like I can say, stop the ride. We want off because no one didn't hear me anyway. And so we get through this whole ride and we get off the ride and I'm just holding him tight and I'm just holding him. And he goes, dad, that was awesome. (laughs) You know? And I've shared that, and, and I'm, when I share that illustration, I usually talk about how it, life is kind of like that. Like, God speaks to us tenderly, and, and in, in the most difficult moments, God is whispering in your ear like a good father, like I was my son. Most people, when I share that illustration, if they mention it to me a couple of days later, they go something like, Dave, thank you for sharing that story. I feel so much better that I'm not the only terrible parent out there, right? Or, you know, like you made me feel a lot better. Even my kids would be like, dad, I can't believe you're such a bad dad to take Nicholas on that ride, you know? Uh, I think we totally miss the application. We totally miss the point. We remember the story and not the application. If you want to make a preacher feel like he's failed, remember the story and not the application. Fail! That's exactly What happens to us as Christians, as people who read Malachi 2, is we get so focused on the illustration, we forget the point of the illustration. God says, I hate divorce, and we get consumed with the point. We treat divorce like an unforgivable sin, or we make this passage about how to have a strong marriage, and in some ways that would be easier today. Be like, don't be like the Israelites. Let's have strong marriages, and I can give you seven ways to strengthen or have your marriage. But honestly, as I study the text, I don't feel like that's being faithful to the text. I mean, we we will have a series on strong marriages, and we will do this, and it's an important point. But I don't think that application is being faithful to this text. If this message is primarily about marriage, then I have the application for you right now. If that's what it is. Men, none of you can marry Canaanite or Midianite women. Okay? So if we have anyone married to a Canaanite or a Midianite, you are in trouble. The rest of you are okay. Men. And just the men. Women, no problems for you. So uh, no Canaanite or Midianites. If this is about marriage, that's the application. But there's more going on here. Really, this passage is so complex. The Hebrew is cryptic and difficult to translate. My head was racing on Thursday as I was trying to make sense of it all. And so I need you today, okay, to listen carefully. So I don't think this is going to be one of those messages where you just sit back and go, 
Oh, Dave was just eloquent today. The words just rolled off his tongue. I, I, I wish he could have preached longer, right? You know, that's probably not going to be this message. This is going to be a message where you need to work to stay engaged. So you have a responsibility as much as I do to be faithful to this text today. So listen carefully. We always start with context. I remind you of context, context, context. Let's put it all in context. Malachi is perhaps most likely the last book written in the Old Testament. So after we're we're in post-exile period, remember the Hebrews, the Jewish people were exiled to Babylon. They spent 70 years. They came back during the time of Haggai that we preached in our last series. Uh, And so there was 80, uh, it's been 85 years since under Haggai's direction, the people rebuilt the temple. Haggai said, rebuild the temple. The people responded, Zerubbabel and some others came along and they rebuilt this temple. By the time we get to Malachi, it's been 85 years. There's a new generation of Israelites that has been raised up. And they are all now going through the motions. Two weeks ago, when we started this series, we talked about that God's great love for us is the antidote when we have going through the motionitis. And last week, Easter Sunday, we looked at how the priests had defiled these sacrifices as they were going through this and and how there was only one perfect sacrifice, Jesus, and how Jesus rose from the dead so that we could be living sacrifices. Malachi is all about people going through the motions. And today, one of the dangers of going through the motions with God is that we would be unfaithful to our covenant with God. So the illustration of marriage in this passage is really about a covenant. And what we're going to look at is what the illustration points to. And we're going to try not to get stuck on the illustration. And so I want to point out some words in this passage in Malachi chapter 2, two verses 10 to 16. I want to point you to several words in the text. And I'm going to explain the text as we look at these key words throughout the text. And so I need your brains engaged. You can follow along the screen. You can write along, whatever you need to do. But hang in here with me. The first word I want to point out to you is the word father. In chapter 2, verse 10, Malachi switches. He says, have we not all one father? So Malachi last week was talking about the priests and how they had defiled the sacrifice and how they were going through the motions and the priests were offering defiled sacrifices. And and that was a symptom of them going through the motions. Now, what's going to happen now is that Malachi is going to shift from talking to the priests to talking to all of the Israelites. He says, we all have one father. I, I take that as big F, Father God. We all have one Father God. We're all in the same playing field here. I was talking just to the priests, Malachi says, now I'm talking to everyone. God made all of us, no matter what. We're all in the same boat here together. Father. The second word I want you to look at is the word covenant. Covenant. In verse uh, 10, the second half, he said, we're all in the same boat here together. So why do we all profane the covenant of our fathers, little f, by breaking faith with one another? What covenant is he talking about here? I think he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. You say, okay, Dave, what's the Abrahamic covenant? Genesis chapter 12 is one of those key moments in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 through 11, Moses has given us everything uh, like a prologue to the story. He's saying, listen, this is world, where the world came from. There's tons of great theology packed in Genesis 1 to 11. But by the time we get to Genesis 12, I think the story really starts. 
He's given us all the background information. And now the, the author of Genesis is going to tell us, okay, here's where the story gets going. God picked out this guy, Abraham, for no, no reason, nothing great Abraham had done. He picked him out and he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. This awesome, amazing covenant. And he had this covenant, this legal contract that God had with Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so God made this foundational agreement that he had with his chosen people, the Israelites. A covenant was sacred. In biblical times, a covenant was sacred. It was important. It's not like some of the contracts we have out there today. Like every time um, iTunes updates on my computer, right? I get this <laughs> legal document that if I were to read it, uh, I would never have anything. I would have no time to listen to my music, right? Because I'd be reading the document. And so, uh, so we all just kind of go, check here. I agree. Fine. Done. Let's go on. We take contracts flippantly. We're just like, whatever. We don't even read them. A covenant was a contract that had a sacred responsibility. It was a serious thing. It was very serious to break a covenant. That's why he's going to talk about the covenant of marriage. Spent a lot of time with Patty the last few days, um, getting ready for the funeral tomorrow, talking about Jack. And one thing that Patty says over and over about Jack is in tears, she says, he loved me. He loved me. I mean, it's so tragic. Um, he loved me, she says. He put me first above everything else in this world. He loved me tenderly, she says, like a husband should love his wife. You know, I think Jack understood the sacredness of the marriage covenant, the sacredness of this agreement that he'd come to take care of his wife and to take care of his family. He got it. He did it right. In God's book, a covenant is a serious and sacred thing. Now, back in, in the Old Testament, Moses did allow in Deuteronomy for a divorce decree. He allowed for a certificate of, of divorce to be issued. And Jesus said it was because of hard hearts. I mean, that's what Jesus, why did Moses do this? Well, Jesus said it was because of the hardness of their hearts. A covenant passed from generation to generation. This covenant that God had with his people, that's illustrated in a marriage covenant, this covenant that God started with Abraham passed to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to his 12 sons, which formed the 12 tribes, to all their descendants, this covenant passed. 600 years after the covenant, if, if the covenant was with uh, Abraham was around 2000 BC, Moses crossed the Red Sea in the year 1444. Uh, and so about 600 years after the covenant, Joshua conquers the land. The people finally enter the land, this promised land that God had promised them. Part of this covenant, God had promised them this land. They finally enter it. And Joshua, 600 years later, renews the covenant with this people. And God's instructions at that time are, if you want to be faithful to this covenant, here's what you do. Joshua says, and God says through Joshua, don't take foreign wives. You're going to go into a land. You're going to conquer these people. Don't intermarry with them, he says. Why does God say that? Because God knows what's going to happen. They're going to take foreign wives and foreign husbands, and, and they're not just going to take them as their spouses. They're going to take their religion with them. They're going to take their worship of false gods. And God knows very quickly it'll take a generation or two for these people who are his people to break the covenant and be worshiping other gods. So God says in marriage, in the Old Testament covenant, 
stay with Israelite spouses. God's instruction, don't break the covenant. The next word I want to point out is the word the phrase. It's one word in Hebrew, but broken faith. Broken faith. Look at the text, verse 11. Judah has broken faith. He's broken faith. Judah is another word for Israel. With this covenant in mind, Malachi says, listen, you've broken the faith. The Hebrew word for broken faith is the idea of broken the covenant. It's, it's, it's an idea of you've done something treacherous and terrible. In the message translation, Eugene Peterson translates it, paraphrases it this way. He says, Judah has cheated on God, a sickening violation of trust in Israel. Judah's broken faith. They've been treacherous. How? How? Well, he's going to go back to the illustration. They divorced their Jewish wives and they went after foreign women. Everything God told them not to do, they did. Why were they? Were they just idiots? <laughs> Maybe. Why did, they, why did they, I mean, he's specifically talking to the men. Why did the men divorce their Jewish wives and go running after foreign women? Maybe they were just dumb. I don't know. Maybe they wanted to change. Maybe these were really hot women. I don't know. Maybe, uh, the, you know, everyone was doing it. So I'm just going along and doing what everyone else is doing. I, I don't know why they did it, but they did it. And according to Ezra, this was not a unique problem to a few people. This was a general trend of society. Men abandoning their wives of their youth and running after foreign women. That was the trend. Marriage was a covenant. It was based on trust. I mean, you see why God uses it as an illustration? Because it's so near and dear to us. It's so tender. Many of us can, can recognize it, you know, through maybe our parents' marriage or our marriage or even when we watch our kids' marriages, some of them. You know, we recognize that marriage is a sacred covenant. And that's why God picks it out as an illustration. Because broken consequences, broken covenants have consequences. There are several of you who have experienced this kind of pain. Like you understand the consequences of a broken covenant. Whether you broke it or your former spouse broke it, you get it. And not only had these people brought pain on their former wives through this broken covenant, they, they've brought pain to God because they've broken his covenant. And this is where Malachi shifts from the illustration to the application. He's laid the groundwork. Listen, you all know firsthand the pain of a broken covenant. You see it. You know it. You've done it. There are a lot of hurting people out there, Malachi says. You know the pain. Now, let's relate that to God. The next word I want you to look at is, is in the next verse. Another thing. Another thing. Verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail. Another thing you do. This signals we're moving on to the application of the illustration. They were unfaithful to their early covenant, or earthly covenant of marriage. In the same way, these people have been unfaithful to the covenant with their heavenly father. How? How had they been unfaithful? How is this, this marriage an illustration of the covenant they'd broken with their heavenly father? They were just heading down the same path. <laughs> they were going through the motions. They had a lover on the side, you know. They had God, their covenant, and the one who was supposed to be their first love. But they had a false God on the side, you know. I keep a little altar under the pillow 
where we can worship the false god. I mean, it happens all over the Old Testament. They'd keep a little something on the side. In case God doesn't answer my prayers, I got this other little thing here. You know, I can pray to it. They were heading down the same path that had just gotten the Israelites exiled 150 years ago. God had said, enough, enough with my wicked people. Discipline is coming. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was torn down. The walls were broken down. The people were held captive in Babylon 70 years. They returned through much heartache and toil. They rebuilt They rebuilt the walls. They rebuilt the temple. They started over. And 150 years later, they were going down the same path. And God is crying out to you, don't do this again. Verse 13, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. (laughs) You want to know why God's not listening? You're weeping and wail because God's not listening. You know why he's not listening? Because you're breaking his covenant. So verse 14 really ties this illustration to the application. In verse 14, look, he says, You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you have broken faith with her. God's all in illustration and application. He's saying, listen, I am the wife. You're the husband that abandoned me. You've broken this. He's saying, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. God's switching this and talking about his covenant. He's saying, you've broken the covenant with your spouse and you've broken a covenant with me. This is a reversal of the normal picture. Normally, in this illustration of marriage, God is always the husband in this picture. And, and then his people or the church is the wife. But here, we have a role reversal. God is taking the role of the wife and saying his people have been a, a, a bad husband that's divorced and abandoned him. Now, what, why, I mean, why would God do that? Why would God switch that metaphor here? Well, I think it's because of a very specific reason. I think that God really wanted to use the illustration of the marriage covenant here. And the problem was in the Old Testament, women weren't allowed to divorce men. Only men could divorce women. That's the way it worked. And so God is saying, listen, I'm going to put this, make this very real for you. This is what you're doing. And you're doing it to me, the one who's been faithful to you. Next word I want to point out to you is one flesh. In verse 15. Verse 15. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. All right. So this verse killed me this week. I mean, it just killed me. I like racked my brain on it. I'm trying to figure out what on earth this verse means. Um, Ryan found one commentator for me that said the Hebrew here is so cryptic and difficult to translate that the translation should just say parentheses, dot, 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 unintelligible, dot, 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 parentheses. I mean, it's so difficult to figure out how the Hebrew, there's like no verbs, it's all nouns. And how does this, what what is Malachi saying? And, And whether something's been lost in the original or Malachi more likely was using some kind of colloquial language that made sense to the people, but it doesn't make sense to us today. Some kind of euphemism or phrase or something that, you know, it just, can't quite get a hold of it. And so I've been rap, racking my brain over this. And I think my best guess, and I'm, I'm just guessing, is here's what verse 15 means. God is saying, listen, there, there, well, there's a couple options. God is saying, first of all, listen, remember Adam and Eve, those people in Genesis 1 that God made, first people, you know, God could have given Adam two or three wives. 
I mean, he could have done it. God, God could have given him Adam, Eve, and, you know, Jane and Frida. Um, that'd be great. And he could have done that, but he didn't. Um, the marriage covenant was with one wife, one flesh. And as a result, there were godly offspring. That's one possibility that Malachi is taking him back to the beginning and say, from the beginning, God had, you know, the, the intent was one woman for one man. That was how it was supposed to be. And that's possible. There's also possible that there's a reference to Abraham going on here. Um, you remember Abraham, um, God, I told you earlier, God made this promise with him that he'd have, make a great nation. And of course, Abraham didn't have any children and he was old and his wife was really old. And so Abraham got tired of waiting and Sarah's wife got tired of waiting. So Sarah said, here, uh, here's my maidservant, Hagar, take her, have a kid with her. That must be the promised child. And so Abraham does that and it doesn't turn out so well. That's Ishmael and it doesn't go well. And God says, no, 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 no. Sarah's going to have a kid. Just wait. Okay, God. And so finally, Sarah has the kid, and, and, and it's Isaac, and, and there's all this blessing associated with Isaac. The promised child came from one wife, not two. Listen, the point is, to the Israelites, you say, when you divorce your Jewish wife and marry another foreign woman, you demonstrate what it means to be a covenant breaker. So up to this point, I really hope you understand what, what Malachi is doing. He's saying, most of all, you've divorced the wife of your youth and you've married a foreign wife and you're doing the same thing with God. You're breaking this covenant that he's made with you. You're chasing after other gods. You're turning your backs on God. Now we come to verse 16. So I've teased you all this time. We get to verse 16 where it says, God hates divorce. I had a shocking moment this week. I was looking at the Hebrew. I was looking through the, the Hebrew and, I, and I, I was looking at the tense of the verbs in the Hebrew and I realized that the Hebrew word for hate is not first person. First person is I, you know, I do something. I do this, I do that. First person of a verb is I, I do something. It, it's third person. It's he hates, says the Lord God Almighty. Whenever you see that word says, you can put in quotes the phrase that was just before it. So it's not I hate Divorce, it's he hates. Then literally another noun that it's hard to translate, divorce. What do you do with that? Why, huh? Well, then I go back, I use the NIV 1984. Uh, If you have the current NIV, you realize, wait a minute, they fixed something here. Or if you have the ESV, huh, they changed something here. Wait, Wait, what's going on? I I mean, they're all of a sudden they're reflecting what's true, that it's not God that hates divorce. I like the Holman Christian Standard Version. I like the way the translators of this fixed it up. Throw it up there. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord. He's talking about these Israelites. He's coming back to the illustration of marriage. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of hosts. You know, and in Jewish days, um, when a hus- husband would take a Jewish woman for his wife, one of the symbols of that was he'd take his garment and he'd stretch it over her. Remember when we were in the series in Ruth and Ruth lays down at Boaz's feet in the middle of the night and he wakes up and she said, spread the corner of your garment over me. She's saying, take me as your wife, I'm yours, right? <laughs> you know, and it's filled with all kinds of stuff that we can't talk about today. And so... Um, 
I mean, there's just all kinds of symbols and imagery there. And so uh, he extends the... And so, you know, what God's saying here is the one who hates and divorces his wife, he extends a cloak of injustice. It's not a cloak of protection. He's going to hurt her if he just abandons her and runs for another woman, for a foreign woman. God is saying, listen, this is what you're doing to me. As I read all this, it's shocking. Instead of being a statement about divorce, that's the unforgivable sin. All of a sudden, we're looking at this and we realize that it becomes an acknowledgement of the pain that comes through the breaking of a covenant. So if you're here today and if you've gone through divorce, I I just want you to hear what I'm saying. You're not a second-class citizen. God loves you. And if anything, he can relate to the pain that you're going through because He's been through it as his chosen people have abandoned him and broken covenant and hurt him. His people do that same kind of pain to him all the time. And there's a whole other group of people here to say, whoa, wait a minute, Dave. I'm not a covenant breaker. I've never done anything like that. I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm a good person and I've kept the covenant. Really? Which one of us has not broken covenant with God? Which one of us has been a faithful spouse to our Lord. Which one of us has been completely faithful? None of us. So the last phrase of verse 16, really, we bring it home. (laughs) He says, so guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Let's talk about this illustration here. I just want to bring it home today. And as we wrap up here, let's just Just take some things home. First of all, let's talk about the illustration. We can't at least just discuss this illustration of marriage. Is the covenant of marriage important? Yes, it is. Because it's so painful to break. So fight for your marriage. If you're married here today, fight. Sacrifice, love, be selfless. We live in a culture where we see these people on TV who have divorced and they're best friends with their ex-spouse. That's a bunch of crock. And it's a hooey. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's like when the doctor says to you, this won't hurt him.
is the sacred covenant with God. So how do we break the covenant? Anytime you love something more than you love Jesus. It shouldn't take you long to think of something you love more than Jesus. I mean, just think. What do you love more than Jesus? There's a lot of things that we love more than Jesus. Um, this week I was, uh, just because of the difficulty of this weekend, I was encouraged to go back and look at my letter that I have for my wife in the event that I go home to be with Jesus, you know? And so one of the things that I have in there, that I, I wrote this about four years ago, and uh, one of the things that I have in there is a line that says, at my funeral, make sure without a shadow of a doubt that everyone knows I love Jesus more than the Cubs. Okay? I don't want any confusion about this. All right? And I'm a little scared that someone might be confused. And I think it's a pause. It's like, really? I know. I spent a lot of time with the Cubs. <laughs> you know? What do I love more than Jesus? Now, here's what's amazing, okay? I'm bringing it right to the end here. Most of us hear that and go, you know, I'm a covenant breaker. You're right, Dave. I love other things more than I love Jesus. And, and so here, here's what I need to do. I need to work harder at being a better spouse to Jesus. So I just need to try harder. And I need to work harder at being a better faithful spouse to him. And the problem with that is we have thousands of years of Bible history that shows try harder doesn't help anyone. Because the Jews tried harder, and then, you know, it didn't take them a few bit of a generation usually to fall. I mean, I just got done reading the book of Judges. Talk about depressing. Uh, you know, I mean, it just should try harder. Trying to be, just trying to be a better Jesus follower doesn't help anyone. So I love the picture that the New Testament gives us of what happens when we trust in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, we have this gift called the Holy Spirit. God himself comes to reside in us. He lives in us. God never leaves us or forsakes us. He's there. The whole, you don't have to ask. If you're praying, say, you don't need to pray ever with someone that God would be with them. Because God is with them. If they're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is with them. You can pray that they'd feel his nearness. And I know that's what most of us mean when we pray that. But, you know, God is, the Holy Spirit is with us. So our job is to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. It's Galatians 5. We walk with the Spirit. We keep in step. I love baseball, so here's the illustration, all right? Um, a pitcher, when he pitches in Major League Baseball, has a number of different pitches he can throw. You know, some of them are two-pitch guys. Some of them are four-pitch guys. You know, they've got the splitter or the fastball or the slider or a curveball or... 12-6 curve or, you know, <laughs> whatever. There's a number of different pitches. And so a pitcher and catch, the catcher knows um, what the pitcher can pitch. And the catcher needs to know what pitch is coming because he needs to know where to put his glove so he catches the ball and it doesn't go to the backstop. If the pitcher just yells up there and goes, hey, I'm throwing the fastball, that kind of tips the batter off. So that usually doesn't work. So the catcher has the sign. The catcher knows the signs. And, he, and he's the only one the pitcher can see the batter well, sometimes you'll see him looking down and trying to catch the sign, and they usually get a fastball in the shoulder if that happens. And so, uh, so the catcher puts down the signs, right? And so then you'll see the pitcher. He's sitting on the mound, and he's looking. And if the catcher puts down a pitch and the pitcher doesn't want it, you'll see him shake his head. So the catcher will try again and shake his head again. And the catcher will try a third time. Finally, the catcher calls for time, and he goes out to the mound. Okay, we've got to get on the same page here. Once in a while, a pitcher will have a personal catcher. Maybe the backup catcher, but he's just... 
really on the same page, and you'll watch this thing, and they've, they've, they've worked together so much that the catcher puts down the sign, and the pitcher rarely shakes them off. It's like the catcher knows exactly what the pitcher wants to throw. And so, boom, the game just goes, yep, 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 yep. And once in a while, you'll see a no. But for the most time, the pitcher just says, yep, that's what I want. Let's go. Let's play the game. The catcher is keeping in step with the pitcher. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, I mean, this, this is what our job with the Holy Spirit is. It's to keep in step. It's to know him so well. It's to be so intimate with his word and his heart and who he is and what he wants is that when we, when we move and act, it's exactly what God wants because we've become so intimately acquainted with him. Otherwise, we're just guessing. Well, I guess I, God wants me to go work in Faith and Action Sunday, so I'll try really hard to give batteries out and, and you know, God will be pleased with me. And that's not what it's all about. It's about keeping in step with God. It's saying, okay, God, this is the kind of thing you want me to do. I know that because it's your heart. There you go. Here's a battery. What? A battery? Are you serious? Okay, thanks. I mean, you know, I mean, that's what people will do, but it's about keeping in step. It's about knowing him so intimately. And so that's, otherwise we're just guessing. We're just trying harder. How do I want you to walk away from here today? I want you motivated to be A good spouse to your earthly spouse, yes. But I want you to be motivated to be a good bride to Jesus. I want you to love Jesus and make him your treasure and great delight. Know him so well that you keep in step and and that as a spouse to Jesus, you're doing what he wants. You're following the spirit. You're following his leading. You're keeping in step because you know him so intimately. So my challenge for you today is you've worked hard to listen to me. I appreciate it. My challenge for you today, keep in step with the Spirit. Go love Jesus. Let's pray and we'll be out of here. Jesus, I love you. I'm thankful today for you. Uh, I'm thankful for, well, we're all covenant breakers. Your grace and mercy is sufficient. I'm thankful that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Lord Jesus, help us keep in step with your Spirit. Let us know you so well. Speak to us, guide us, lead us this week. We pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.